First Timothy 2, 1 Timothy 3 for a moment as well. Page 960, if you're using the Bibles we provide here, 960 and 61. Please follow along if at all possible. One of the challenges of a church or really any organization is to keep the main thing the main thing. If you're a company that makes cars, you have to keep focused on making the best possible cars. What's a church called to make? Go and make disciples of all nations, Jesus said. Baptizing, teaching, I'm with you. The paragraph that we're focused on today, the first seven verses of chapter 2, tells us to pray, but specifically to pray about the main thing. To pray about making disciples, that is, helping people come to faith in Jesus Christ and then following Him with wholehearted obedience. But before we look at that passage, I'd like us to look at chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, because really, the section we begin today is like starting the main body of the letter. If you'll notice, actually, look back at chapter 2, verse 1. I urge then, first of all, we've had a whole chapter, but he's now starting the main part of the book. And chapters three, verse, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 are the best explanation we have in the book of the theme or the purpose, the real punch of why God inspired Paul to write this letter to Timothy as he was leading the church in Ephesus. So here's chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Paul says, Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So Paul is saying, I'd like to be there personally, I will get there personally, but until I come, I need you to know something. I need you to know the instructions of what the household of God should be doing. Who's the household of God? That's us. That's the church. So what should the church be doing? Because we are the church of the living God. So God is in heaven, And he says, I have my representatives on earth. It's my household. And here's what they are. They are the pillar and the foundation of the truth. We have the truth. And so if the world is going to know about the truth, they're going to hear it from us. That's how we've chosen the, the theme that we put on our banner. Really coming from these two verses, because it's really coming... It's describing the whole book. Living as God's people in a world needing truth. We are the pillar and the foundation of the truth. So as we begin chapter 2, it's like Paul is saying, I'm going to get into this, this truth issue that we must communicate to the world. But first, chapter 1 has not been unrelated because in chapter 1, Paul told Timothy to deal with those who were teaching heresy, untruth. So the first thing in being a foundation of the truth is to expose heresy. In fact, he named names, Hymenaeus and Alexander, and says, deal with them, put them out of the church because they are not teaching the truth. But now he says, I want to tell you what a church should be doing. Number one is to be praying. Verse one, 
chapter 2. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all or everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. So pray about these things, and it seems to benefit us, but ultimately, keep reading, this is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So in praying for all, it will benefit us what God does, but when it benefits us, it's to benefit the world because God desires all to be saved. So who do we pray for? All. That's the end of verse one. The main thing is pray for everyone. Now I think something needs to be pointed out is that when he's giving these instructions, he is specifically addressing prayer when the church gathers. This is not about your personal prayer life, first of all. It's about how we pray when we get together as a church. There's a lot of applications because whatever God is telling us to pray as a church is obviously a model for how we would pray when we're having our personal time with God. But pray publicly, pray together, pray corporately when you meet. There's a number of things that God has told us to do, Christ has told us to do in the church. We've done a couple of them here in this meeting already. We worshiped, gathered together to worship, sing praises. We're gathered together to hear instruction from the word of God. We're gathered together to fellowship with one another. You've talked with each other before. You'll talk with each other after. We, we grow by being together. But we also gather to pray. Frankly, in this, in this service, one of our less done, least focused priorities is often corporate prayer in a large group together. Our prayer ministry takes place more, and I think really more effectively, as we are face-to-face with each other in smaller groups. Our adult Bible fellowships, other Bible studies where you actually know each other and share prayer requests. But this time should not be without prayer. We start and finish with prayer, but what you may have noticed, one thing this past year, and I uh, thank you, Pastor Seth, for initiating and following through on this, is at the end of every public corporate service, we're taking a time for prayer. It's awkward sometimes, isn't it? So Seth or somebody will give us kind of a prompt for prayer and kind of waiting, is anybody going to pray? And and one person prays, and there's just silence, and we're all kind of feeling awkward or embarrassed, or should I say something? Let me just share something. If silence during corporate prayer feels awkward, it may be that you weren't praying. You were listening to people pray. Because if, if you are actually praying, communicating with God... Here's what I suggest. If somebody prays audibly, then pray along with them. And then when there's silence, just keep praying. Maybe something that person prayed audibly will give you a kind of a divine rabbit trail and you'll be praying something else personally, corporately, as God prompts your heart. It's okay when there's silence. Remember the first time I went to a Packers game in person? 
It was my first NFL game also. And all of a sudden I realized everybody on the, on the field is standing around, like doing nothing. It wasn't a, a, a timeout where, you know, here's what we got to do, here's the next play. But they're all standing around, and the person who brought me said, yeah, that's a TV timeout. Oh. So they stand around until they're given the, okay, now you can start again. I, I've been to baseball games, and, of course, all that commercial stuff is happening when they're trading places every half inning. But there is no timeout when we're having corporate prayer, whether it's in this room or in a, in a classroom or a Bible study or in a home or wherever. You don't need to take a time out. Just keep praying because we are the church of the living God. And he says, first of all, I urge you to pray because this is how you connect with him. If you don't connect with him, we got nothing. We have no power to make disciples of all nations. Jesus said in John 15, without me, you can do nothing. So you better stay attached to the vine because, and so that's what this is about. We have to, first of all, pray so that we are connected to him. Paul uses four terms for prayer, not accidentally. They're very, very, very helpful. Requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving. It's an interesting combination. It might be translated slightly different. The first one is about asking for things. The last one, Thanksgiving, is about thanking God for things. The two in the middle are prayer words that inform our attitude. This is, the, this is what prayer is like, an attitude. Okay, let's, think, let's walk through them. First of all, the term requests or petitions. And this is, in this case, not praying for ourselves. This is praying for others because we're gathered with others when we do this. I think God, God assumes, and the other prayer passages often assume, you're going to pray about your own needs. No, no, no problem there. But this is about praying for all. It's for others. And the starting place with that, for that would be to pray for those that we are meeting with. When we meet. As you walk in, there are people you know, people you don't know. And as you see people you know, it's because you know something about them. Pray for them. Pray for them. You might see someone that that you sense is maybe struggling in their marriage. Pray for them. You may see someone that is uh, struggling with health or, or finances or maybe spiritually struggling. You haven't seen them very much and you're concerned. Pray for them. Pray. Because if you don't, you know what our our default sinful fleshly tendency is? You see someone and you criticize them in your heart. Because anyone you know at all, you know something that isn't perfect about them because we're a bunch of sinners gathered on Sunday morning. And so we will be critical by nature and the best cure is to pray for them. It's really hard to criticize or dislike someone as you're praying for them. Just some encouragement for how to pray for one another. The second term is about expressing reverence for God. It's an attitude. This term for prayer is about an inferior appealing to a superior. That is, you're acknowledging who he is 
and who you are in relation to him. I am talking to the one who is in charge. He is the king of the earth, the creator of the universe. And so I have a reverent respect for him. So as I request something, I I don't lose track of who I'm talking to. that, That takes the demandingness out of what I ask him for. The next term is also an a prayer term that expresses an attitude. It's almost like a flip side of the previous because while the first term for prayer expresses respect, this expresses a childlike confidence. It's more of a relational thing. Um, So you're addressing God as king, but who are you? You're a child of the king. And children talk to their dad if he's a king a little different than everybody else everybody else wants to talk to the king has to probably go through layers of 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 managers and and officials but not the toddler who's the son of the king he or she they can just blurt out to dad what they want and yet recognizing he's dad and so there's this this combination in prayer where we come to him with an attitude of utmost reverence and respect and yet with this sense of I have complete open access I can just blurt out and tell them everything I'm feeling isn't that a wonderful combination let's not forget either side of that attitude of prayer so the first is we're going to pray for others and their needs but with an attitude of respect an attitude yet of confidence like a child And then we're going to thank God. Thanksgiving. Requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all or everyone. So if you, I hope every time you walk into anything that's church here, whether it's a Bible study or this worship service, I hope that as you walk in, you see people that just make you smile. You know them, you've known them. You, you, you've got some history. You, you, you love them. They love you. I hope there are people that make you smile. Thank God for them. And it could be there are some people that don't make you smile. Thank God for them. How else are we going to grow in grace if we never get to practice it? Thank God for all. And if... As you come in, you don't know anyone enough to know if you're thankful or not by nature. Well, that's kind of on you to get to know them. But pray for all. This past unique season, we've kind of been forced to see church on several levels and applying it to prayer. We had a 10-week season where church was all online. Just observe. It's all you could do. Turn the TV on. You couldn't interact. You couldn't pray together. You couldn't hug anybody. You were just, we were grateful to be online, but you were watching church, right? You really couldn't be the church very well. You had to watch church. So there, there wasn't much praying for one another, each other's needs. But then as we begin to gather, and by now, almost everyone has, has come back to gather in person. 
we experience church at another level, and that's where we actually see each other. We can greet each other. We can talk to each other before and after, and we can, we can begin to pray for each other a little bit more knowingly. That's better. Big upgrade. But there's another level that we all need in order to be the church that prays for each other's needs, and that is you've got to know each other's needs. And you don't necessarily get that as you pass each other in the coffee line or walking to and fro. And that's why we really are excited to be able to more and more have our Bible studies, adult Bible fellowships, Sunday school. During this past season, we have had the uh, children's and youth ministries midweek, and we've been able to start a number of Bible studies, and the welcome class has been going, and those kind of things. But this fall, mark your calendars for September 12, because that's when the rest of it opens up on Sunday mornings. And with the basement hopefully fully completed and, and walls all painted, we'll have the kids build program and we'll start adult Bible fellowships. That'll be, we'll have announcements rolling some of that out. They'll look different and uh, there's a number of changes to talk about. But that's where we're going to get to know each other so we can pray knowingly for each other. Pray. Prayers be made for all But our natural tendency, even as a church family, is we pray for one another. Verse 2 reminds us that we're not here just to pray for one another. And so it points out our leaders, I think, to make sure that we are praying for those we are called to reach, those we are called to make disciples from. For kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness, keeping in mind the the main thing, this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved. So pray for the main things for the main reason. The first part says that we should pray that we could be at peace and able to live godly and holy lives. There's a role of human government and officials to provide that freedom. Now, clearly there are times in God's sovereignty that there is more persecution than, than peace. It's interesting, Paul is asking this. He has just within the last maybe two years gotten out of prison, where he was unjustly imprisoned for preaching the gospel. But yet it puts a special weight when he says, you know, persecution isn't all it's cracked up to be. <laughs> I'm just glad to be out planting and encouraging churches again. So let's pray for our rulers that we would have the freedoms, the peace, and the quiet to live godly lives. So so it will not always be God's will, but we pray for it just like we don't always know if it's God's will to heal someone, and yet we pray that we would be healed. For kings and those in authority, pray for them. We're actually never told to complain about them. I couldn't find any verse that said, as you gather, be sure to complain about your governing authorities, but I could find this one about praying for them. Paul wrote, while Nero ruled the empire and the tyranny against Christians was becoming more and more pronounced, and yet Paul is not complaining or criticizing any godless ruler. He says, pray for them. So, In the last presidential term, you should have been praying for President Trump, and now you should be praying for 
President Biden, what do you pray? That we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. And then it says, not just the king, but all those in authority. I think, I think Paul is very perceptive here because through the centuries, local officials often have a lot more influence on the freedom of the church to be the church than even the top guy or something like that. For example, it was harder, if you follow the news, it was harder for churches in California to restart meeting during COVID than it was in Wisconsin, right? It was during a season in which part of it was under one president and part of it was under another president, but that wasn't where the control was coming. It was coming more from the from the state level and even the local level. At our at Priscilla's family reunion last uh, weekend, uh, her younger sister is from California, and so she and her husband and their adult kids were at the reunion, and they all go, they all attend the same church, and they were talking about how that worked because there were a lot of restrictions, and their church was was trying to be very careful to follow the restrictions, and now they're able to begin to regather, but. It wasn't about the king or the president. It was about the governor and then even the the more local officials that became more significant. It seems that Paul understands that. And it's interesting, even then what he prays, he tells us to pray for, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness. As you look at those two terms, peaceful and quiet, they look like synonyms and often, you know, you read something in Scripture and you'll say it like three different ways. But, but this is inspired Scripture, so each word means something. The first term, whether it's translated peaceful or not for you, but the first term is more about peaceful relationships externally. The second term, quiet, is more about peace within. And in this context, it's probably saying, pray that you will have peaceful relationships with who? governing authorities so this external peace with pray that we would be able to have a peaceful relationship with our local officials so maybe don't burn any bridges over building codes and local ordinances because there are more important things praying for the main thing so we need peaceful relationships with those who are over us in our communities, if we're going to pray for our communities to come to know Christ. But then you also want to pray for quiet, and that would be that we would have internal peace, regardless of our circumstances. Because if we are filled with frustration and anger, that's not really a way to grow in in godliness and holiness. And so we'll need to deal with our own stuff as well as our relationships with others. And why would we pray for these benefits that we would have these good relationships and we would have peace in our hearts through the the governing officials and in the church? So why would we pray that? Now he gets to the real punch of what we're to pray for. Because this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So we're not just praying for our own comfort because I, I really like the comfort of being able to, to freely proclaim the gospel and meet. But that's not ultimately the reason. It's so that we would have an impact 
in our world, starting in our own communities. I think we need to evaluate our own prayer lives. Are we mostly praying that we would be saved or rescued for some, from something unpleasant on earth, or are we praying that unbelievers would be saved from an eternity in hell? Are we praying? Are we praying for what's most important to God? Is your goal in praying the same as God's goal, as you would pray about these things? Because he wants all men to be saved. And the word saved means, indeed, rescued from eternal punishment in hell. That's what we're here for. We're, we, remember we're the pillar and the foundation of the truth, chapter 3, verse 15? If the world's going to know truth, they've got to know it from us because we have the truth and we have the Bible and we're going to proclaim it. So let's make sure we are praying about that. This is good. This is acceptable. This pleases God. God in heaven is, 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 hears all of our prayers. He cares about all of our needs. We can talk to him about anything. But don't you suppose, in a sense, his ears perk up when we start to pray about the things that he cares most about? What does he care most about? He wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. If you ever want to make sure you're praying in the will of God, pray this. Because God desires all men. In fact, he's called God our Savior. Desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. Not all men will be saved. He knows that. But that is the desire, the heart of God. Do we understand the heart of God? This is trying to express to us, this this is what God's about. Peter said the same thing. In a context where he was reminding us of eventual judgment that would be necessary to come, he says, but he is God, he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This is what God desires. Judgment will come not because God wants to, but because he is holy and it's going to. But here's the desire of God towards each person. Or the familiar words of John three sixteen: God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Sending Jesus was all about the fact that he wants to rescue people from an endless hell. The next verse, for God did not send his son into the world. He didn't, he didn't go to all that trouble <laughs> to condemn the world, but to save the world through him, through Jesus, whom he sent. You, you may have heard critics of Christianity, critics of the Bible or, or God himself, say, I could never believe in a God who would send people to hell. Have you heard that? I would never believe in a God who sends people to hell. The sad reality is that all are already destined for hell. And what God desires is to rescue and save people from that judgment. There is only one God, and as we will now see, and that God is holy. Hebrews, uh, Deuteronomy say, God is a consuming fire. His holiness is a wrath that's going to be spilled out like fire sweeping through a community, and only those who are rescued will be spared 
the judgment. But God's heart is to rescue, pray about that because somehow in, in God's complex sovereignty, he utilizes our prayer in his plan. It's about as far as I can fathom. I just know that he does because he says that he does. So we pray. It's good to pray. It pleases God our Savior to pray because he wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. These two terms, the two expressions, saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, could be synonyms that knowledge of the truth means knowledge of the truth of the gospel so they can be saved or it could actually be talking about the discipleship process he wants all men to be saved by faith in christ and to continue to grow in their knowledge of the truth that's what discipleship is when he said go and make disciples he implied both because he says go and make disciples you have to tell people the gospel so they believe but he says then baptize them and teach them to obey everything maybe this is is encompassing the whole discipleship process and he says Pray that that happens. Pray that what? We can make disciples because that's the main thing that we are about. So how do you become a disciple, a follower of Christ? Well, you've got to know these things, verse 5 and 6. Here, here is the good news. This is the gospel. This is the message that everyone in our community, everybody in your area of influence, everybody in your extended family needs to know in order to believe in Christ and have eternal life. Here it is. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given at, the proper, at its proper time. So it happened exactly when God planned it. This whole plan was not an afterthought of God. It wasn't like Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and God goes, Oh boy, now what do I do? <laughs> it was all in the plan. Exactly when Christ would come and where we would live in relation to that. But these are the three doctrinal terms. There is one God, not many. There's one mediator, the man Christ Jesus, not many ways to heaven. And it's all because of what he did on the cross. The ransom. Payment for our sins. Let's think through those three essential doctrinal truths. There's one God. Don't take that for granted. Much of the world believes in many gods. There is, there is still idolatry all over the world as there was in that time. There is a prevailing global cultural idea that any religion is okay. Any religion is good if it helps you to be a better person. And so it's like you know, there's, there's, you know, Islam's God and Buddha, Buddhism's God and, you know, Christian God and the Bible's God. No, no, no. That's a big lie because there's one God and he is revealed in his one word. In fact, the, the main reason why Christianity is under the attack that it is, is because we have an exclusive message. We don't have an, we don't have an inclusive or you could say religiously tolerant message at all there's one god and there's one mediator it made a stir in ephesus the place where this letter was going where timothy was leading the church back when paul was there in the third missionary journey acts 19 paul 
was leading people to faith in Christ and something was really being transformed in that city. And it says that the people who believed in sorcery, they were worshiping Satan, were bringing their scrolls and burning them. And there was another problem that was alarming the city. And that is that the city of Ephesus had their local deity, a goddess named Artemis, or another name was Diana, a female goddess. And, and this, is, this is what uh, a guy named Demetrius, who was a silversmith, said. You see how this fellow Paul is convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. Oh, that that would be what we're accused of. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. What was the problem? What, what was motivating him? There's a danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. So we're losing money because people aren't buying idols anymore. The issue was that he was teaching the exclusive, singular, monotheistic God of the Bible. Therefore, nobody else, there is no other God. And that's exactly the truth. There is one God. The message that we preach, that there is one authoritative source of truth, the Bible, from which we understand the one God of the Bible, the creator of the universe, who provided one way of salvation through Jesus alone. That is the problem that the enemy, Satan, has with us. And that is the true spiritual battle. So as we go to prayer, we need to pray about the main thing. It's that message. One God and one mediator, the man, Christ Jesus. He emphasized the fact that Jesus Christ became man, became human. That is why he could be a mediator. A mediator is someone who brings two parties who are in conflict, brings them together. What was the conflict? The conflict is that God is absolutely pure and holy, and we are all stained by sin. All have sinned and come short of God's glory, which is his perfect standard. How do you put that together? How can you put together an absolutely holy God and a completely stained humanity? Everyone has sinned. The only difference is how much sin, but everyone has sinned. Well, there's only one, one way, and that's the mediator, Christ Jesus. Because Jesus Christ was God, he was perfect, and thus could be the perfect mediator, the sinless sacrifice for our sin. But the only reason he could die is because he was man. It was the perfect plan, the perfect solution. The mediator is Jesus. Let me say this, this gently, but, but clearly. The mediator is not a priest or a pastor. The mediator is not Mary, as some people teach. Because Mary, special in the plan of God to bear his son humanly on earth, Mary was a sinner too and needed the salvation that her son Jesus would bring. Because there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He is the 
only way to heaven. He goes on to explain why, verse 6, because he gave himself as a ransom for all. Nobody else did. You can't pay for your sins. No human being can pay for your sins. Put in a plug for you. No. Only Jesus, and he paid it all. He is the ransom. When you hear the word ransom, uh, we kind of think like kidnapping or something like that. The word ransom in the first century made everybody think about, it's a money word. Cha-ching. Someone's got to pay for something. You go 30 over and you get stopped, you're going to pay for something. Okay? You sin. And in the one God's world, sin must be paid. We all sin. It all must be paid. The reason hell is forever is because our sin debt will never actually be paid if we reject God's solution. The reason heaven is free and forever is because if we accept, embrace, and trust in God's solution for sin, our sin is completely paid for. And that is the difference. He gave himself as a ransom for all. For all. This, this payment was made for all. The Bible teaches that, that this act, this, the atonement is unlimited in its extent. Or as John would say, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. The payment for all sin of all people of all times was, was paid on the cross because all sin was put on Jesus And then God the Father poured out his wrath on Jesus and he paid for it all. It's like Jesus' death was a prepaid debit card that's then offered to all. A prepaid debit card, it was the sin was paid for, and it was the card was validated by the resurrection. This this card is good. But how many of us have sometimes neglected to use a gift card. There's, that's how they make their money, isn't it? People have cards with balances all over the place. That's their profit margin. There's a lot of debit cards that Jesus has paid for that are unclaimed. Because it's a very, very humbling step to use the card. Because when you use that card, you are acknowledging, I could do nothing to pay for this card. It's a complete gift. I I can't help this card. I must admit that my own good works, my own efforts, my own religious practices are completely inadequate, and I have to completely trust what Jesus provided. But that's what he invites us to do. And the reason he invites us to do it The reason he made it completely free is so that he would get all the credit. God shares his glory with no one. So Ephesians 2, starting in verse 7, we sometimes start with verse 8. 
The reason for this plan and salvation being free is that in order in the coming ages, that's the eternal ages of heaven, in the coming ages, He, God, might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. He's not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So He gave His own Son on the cross to take the punishment for our sin so that if we believe in Him, He gets all the credit. And so that's why Verse 8 says, it is by grace, undeserved, you have been saved through faith. This is our step. This is our decision. Through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. If that's not clear, he says, not by works. So it's nothing that you can do to deserve this. Why? So that no one can boast. No one can brag, I got to heaven because I'm good enough. So what is this step of faith? The step of faith is to personally make a decision to trust in Christ alone and not in yourself. What are you depending on? What are you trusting in for eternal life? Is the issue, is the question. Is the message that we are called to proclaim? Is the message we are called as a church to pray about? Because Free is really hard for our world to understand because it's so humbling to say, I'm going to trust in Christ and Christ alone. Have you made that step of putting your faith in Christ alone? That's the most important question for you. If you have any uncertainty, unresolved question, please talk to any of us on the pastoral staff or maybe somebody you know here. We would love to help you clarify what it means to put your faith in Christ. And for those of us who do, we are called, first of all, to pray about that for our community. Pray about the main thing. This needs to be the laser focus of our church as we pray. God has placed us in Ozaki County for a reason, to pray for all, but all includes our community, officials, so that they will be saved by simple faith in Christ. What, what would God do if three or four hundred of us begin to pray regularly for the salvation of people in our communities, counties, our area of influence? What would God do if three or four hundred of us begin to pray regularly for that? There's only one way to find out that we would begin to pray. I would just encourage you just to put a little bit of a, a bracket on it. Would you join me? I'm going to attempt to pray daily for this. Would you join me the rest of this summer in a daily personal commitment to pray for those who have not yet put their faith in Christ in our communities and our areas of personal influence? Let's just, let's just commit in our heart. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or sign a card. This is, this is, is you, and, you and God, you and the church saying, we want to pray about that. What might God do as we approach the king in reverence, but childlike confidence, and ask for the thing that's most important to him because he desires all to be saved? What might God do? And to put a little bit of a feat to this effort, uh, starting on July 7, that's a Wednesday, and every Wednesday the rest of this summer, uh, we're going to be 
praying at noon, if you would want to commit to also make a special focus noon on Wednesdays, starting July 7, Pastor Seth's going to be back from vacation, and some of you have already participated in the Just Pray ministry that's been going on that uh, Pastor Seth has been leading. And so we're going to kind of give a specific focus to that in July and August. At noon on Wednesday, go ahead and get out your Google calendars. Uh, Noon on Wednesday, wherever you are, or if at all possible, come because we meet. He's already been meeting, and we'll be meeting here in the Discipleship Center to pray at noon on Wednesdays. And we're going to restart the, the Zoom link for that. So that's going to be emailed out to the church mailing list that you can join us by Zoom if you aren't able to come in person. But starting July 7, that's two weeks from this Wednesday, we want to make that our focus. Praying about the main things. God saves, we don't, so that God gets the credit. But what is our part? Verse 7. Paul says, Paul, Paul describes his part. This is what he was called to do. And we have many parallel similar things. And for this purpose, Paul says, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. And a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. Interesting three terms that he uses to describe his role in communicating this message. I'm a herald, or some of you had the translation that says preacher. I'm a herald or preacher, proclaimer. That's just somebody who tells it. I'm an apostle, Paul said. I think that's why he added that little phrase, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, because apostle was a very distinct gift and role because he heard directly from God to, to speak for God and to write the Bible the 13 books that he was inspired to write. So that's kind of a unique role. A herald, an apostle, and a teacher. A teacher is just somebody who takes the Bible and says, you know, it could be one-on-one across a coffee table or whatever, but just someone who tells people about what the Bible says. And what the Bible says, the main thing is that we cannot be made right with God unless we put our faith in Jesus, the one mediator between God and man. That's my purpose. Is it yours? It's ours. This is what we're assigned. Let's be praying about the main thing. And then if it means walking across the street, or for some it means going across the world, but it's the main thing we need to pray for. I'm going to close briefly in prayer. Seth is going to come and lead us in corporate prayer. Remember, silence is okay. And audible prayer is good too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to bring our hearts and our minds before you. There are so many cares on our mind. Lord, I can't imagine the, the many needs that are represented by the people in the room, the people online. Our lives are are filled sometimes with weights of responsibility or or questions of what we should do, how to handle something, or just the heaviness of something that really hurts. And you've said that we can cast all of our cares upon you because you care for us. And so we, we do that. We, we, we tell you those things probably regularly, but today we want to gather our hearts together to pray about what's, what we know is your will, what we know you care about. You desire all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth through Jesus Christ and him alone. And so we gather our hearts together to pray for our community, for our relationships, 
that we could help guide people to an understanding, a clear understanding of this amazing gospel truth that you are the only way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.